welcome to episode 75 of The Dive Down, a Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike focused on the latest decks, trends, and strategies in Modern and Pioneer. My name is Stanislav here in Chicago, and with me on the line from Denver, Colorado, it's the one and only Shane Beeps. Stanislav, how are you? Good to see your face. Yeah, happy Memorial Day. Oh, yeah. What what, what are you thinking about right now, Stan? You know, I had a couple hot dogs. Yeah. And now I'm drinking a fizzy beverage. Yeah. And now I have hot dog burps. <laughs> Is it a pamplemousse hot dog burp? Actually, it's lime LaCroix. Oh, lime's a good one. Lime's really dry, though. Really dry. Yeah, you know me. I like my LaCroix how I like my red wines. Dave, the godfather, how do you drink your LaCroix? How do you drink your wine? Right now, because our air conditioning is broken, I drink everything kind of hot and annoyed. Oh, no. That's how everything in my life is. <laughs> Just hot and sweaty and annoyed. Yeah, summer is here, isn't it? Yeah, summer is here in Chicago, and it's warm out, and my air conditioner broke when I tried to turn it on for the first time this summer. And you know what? We're talking about a fire's deck, and so I guess it's appropriate to have the heat. Was it like... When they turned off the power grid in Ghostbusters, it's like, when I turned my AC on? Yes, exactly. Uh, No, it just just smelled like uh, a burning computer. In fact, I thought it was my computer that was burning that happened. (laughs) My circuit boards. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I don't know if it's a $300 fix or a $5,000 fix. I guess we'll find out soon. Depends who you ask. Right. Well, you're here to hear potential patrons. Dave needs to fix his air conditioner. (laughs) Pledge drive. Really? On this week's Pioneer-centric episode, we break down the results from the weekend's Pioneer Super Qualifier. Then we talk about what it means to be a tap-out control deck as we dive into Jeskai, Yurion, Fires, Super Friends, Treachery, Tornado, Luka, Cards. Look, we don't name these decks, but we do call them how we see them. Before we get into all that, though, it's everyone's favorite section of the show, Housekeeping. Shoutouts this week go to the newest patrons to join the Dive Down Nation. Hello and thank you to Con K, Mike W, and Kyle A. Thanks so much for supporting the show. Going right to my air conditioner. Thanks. <laughs> also, shout out to Gizlo for the very friendly review on Apple Podcast. Thank you so much. Listen, if you like the show and you use any Apple Podcast to engage with podcast products, just... Give us like five stars, maybe think about it. Maybe give us some nice words, possibly, so that those reviews pop up. It'll help people find us. It'll also tell us what you think. If you like the show, if you don't like the show, please do not leave us any reviews. You can just contact us directly. There's like people hate listening. They're just like, oh, God, these guys. I can't wait to give them one star. (laughs) I bet we have some hate listeners. We're on episode 75. There's got to be one. Um, as we mentioned earlier, you can support us via patreon.com slash the dive down. Look, we know things are weird. We know finances can be weird right now, but maybe think, maybe everything's great. Maybe, maybe you're just plugging along and you want to support us at the dive down. Even a dollar an episode is extremely helpful. Goes towards things like making play mats, printing some new uh, pins, making stickers, making new tokens. We're looking at auditioning some new artists for a new run of tokens, things like that. 
We need to be able to make this stuff to get it out to you. We need to be able to pay our editor, buy Adobe software uh, subscriptions, things like that. All this kind of stuff is helpful for you to help us with. So if you can and want to, go to patreon.com slash the dive down. Uh, look at what we have to offer. And we appreciate our patrons that have been there for a long time and anyone who signs up this coming week. Yeah, people don't know this, but our entire infrastructure is built on Dreamweaver. <laughs> I have not heard that name in a while. Wow. Did I just show my age? Yeah, it's 1998 here again. Stan was using Dreamweaver when he was nine years old. Uh, and if you would like to support the dive down a little bit more directly uh, while you're playing Magic, you should check out Manitraders.com. Manitraders is our longtime sponsor at this point, and they are the best place to rent Magic Online cards. So if you are on Moto, you want to try to try out some decks, or you're thinking about taking the plunge on Moto while you're home during this strange, strange time that we're in, give them a shot. If you do give them a chance, enter code the dive down all one word as part of your checkout process, and you will get 15% off your first three months of your Manitraders subscription. Manitraders.com. Yeah, you know, like other podcasts, they sell mattresses and food in a box. We don't do that. We just talk about Outback Steakhouse and Mana Traders because we love steak and renting magic cards. It's authentic. Yeah. Outback is kind of an unrequited kind of love situation, though, because we know who they are. They have no idea who we are. How's Outback's vegetarian selections? Because I haven't eaten meat in five months. And I mean, Outback might be the place to, to break veg, but I mean, I don't know. I mean, they got a good salad. That comes in a bag, I think. And also, you can get uh, steamed broccoli on the side. Oh, man. This this is really appealing. Don't forget the Bloomin' Onion. I mean, I would never. All right. All that out of the way. Let's jump over to Shane, who's at the news desk this week. Thank you, Stan. So here at the news desk this week, we're going to have an all-Pioneer episode. Pioneer Super Qualifier for the breakdown. So there's no community tournaments this week that I know about. So we're going to head back to the world of the Super Qualifiers. And as usual, we get the top 32. So we're going to break down the top 32 metagame, look at the top eight, and then look at some interesting decks that showed up. So first, let's go over the top 32 meta. And it's, I think, pretty interesting this week. So we had 10 Demir Inverter, 10 copies of Demir, and only one of those 10 was a Yorian build. So Demir Inverter has apparently gone back to its roots. I remember uh, just last week, Everett Aspiring Spike was on, and he was saying that, yeah, I think that Demir Inverter is probably better off doing the traditional build. And I think people people listened to the episode and agreed. So they all went back to the 75-card build, uh, the streamlined control combo deck of choice this weekend. What's interesting, I think, is that uh, Jace Friends Prodigy is essentially out of the deck entirely. So the non-spell suite is just strictly four Athos's Oracle, four Inverter, and three Jace Wielder of Mysteries in, I think, every deck that I was looking at of, of the 75-card build. Do you think that's because Jace just cannot stick around anymore? I mean, in the burn meta, it's probably really challenging. The burn counter meta, at least. What do you think, Dave? Just a little bit slow to get going, not not like integral to the to the deck's main plan. I mean, I think it probably has more to do with how many shocks and uh, wizards lightnings there are floating around in Pioneer right now. Is Jace Friends Prodigy also a wizard? Yes, he is. Yeah. I mean, a counter wizard tech. 
Um, as I mentioned, the second most frequent deck on the top 32 was five copies of Burn featuring Luris. Uh, Burn retains its hold on the Pioneer Tier 1 power level. You know, cheap creatures, decent Burn, and uh, Luris Recursion seems to keep getting the job done. Burn has stuck around since Luris was printed and people figured this deck out. So we got, it's mostly red, a little bit of splash for um, Boros Charm primarily and Luris, of course. The third most frequent deck was four copies of Super Friends featuring Yorian. Um, I think we're going to be talking about this this episode, quite possibly. You think so? I think so. You think so? Did you help write the notes at all? or I might have scanned... Who told you this? I might have scanned okay. the notes. Um, three copies of Azorius Control featuring Yorian. This is sort of like the Fires of Invention lists Planeswalker heavy control deck of the format. Um, it leans heavy on kind of the traditional Azorius controlling spells, Planeswalkers like Gideon of the Trials, Narset, T3, T5. Elspeth's son's nemesis seems to be kind of the stock Elspeth nowadays. And of course, the heavy dose of white enchantments to remove and control the board and provide some value and be blinked with uh, Yorian, of course. Shark Typhoon's even in there. Uh, we might be talking about that card later as well, but... If you need some Shark Typhoon fix, you can find it in Azorius Control featuring Yorian. There are two copies of the Garuda combo featuring Garuda. Hexproof Ramp, ton of clones, some Dragonlord Colligans, and Garuda, so get there, I guess. Yeah, one thing I'll say about these decks that I've noticed is that they are playing a couple of different cards from what I played a couple weeks ago when I did this. Uh, two in particular, one is they seem to all have four Thought Knots here in the main right now, which is a nice little piece of disruption. I miss that. To have access to. Uh, and definitely the decks that I've been playing against online in the Pio Leagues have had that. And then also, they now have a Wisp Weaver Angel in the deck, which is as sort of like a Restoration Angel kind of card. So it it's just another way to blink your Garuda and make your army get bigger. But the list that I was playing originally did not have that card. And so... They seem to be slightly even higher up on creatures than they were when I was playing it before. Why Why do you think this card of all cards? Because like it's an even CMC? It's just like, it seems crazy. It's just another target for something to pull back out of the graveyard, realistically. And so it's just upping the number of hits that you have in your uh, your deck. Yeah, so it's a, a four white, white for a 4-4 four, four Flying Angel, and then when it ETBs, you basically ex you know, blink something, exiles, and returns it under, under your control. Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind with this, in, in my estimation, now only playing this deck a little bit, is that it's a, it's a card that lets your army get bigger, get wider, instead of being a card that you have to um, later kill uh, because of Legend Rule, basically. So it looks like the deck is down on Vizier of Many Faces, at this point and using Wisp Weaver Angel instead so that you can go wider. So before you only had Spark Double that would let you go wider and now you have Wisp Weaver and Spark Double. So after playing against this guy Ruta deck a couple times, I found that it is super vulnerable to like a single Mystical Dispute or Disdainful Stroke. And I really love this Thought Not Seer as a way to just get that counter hate out of opponent's hand because... It's like usually enough to clear the way. Yeah. And keep in mind that if you are playing a deck where you have, you know that you're facing hate, you can just clone your thought knots here. Why not brain maggot? Why not just brain maggot? It only costs two. Because it beats down. That's a good point. And the card never comes back. 
So That's a good point. I like all these points. All right, we've got two copies of Lotus Breach now featuring Luris. Hmm? So this is formerly one of the few companionless decks in the format. And um, about a week ago or so, maybe like five, well, by the time you hear this, like a week and a half, we've started seeing Luris show up in some of these Lotus Breach lists. And this removes the ability of like Vizier of Tumbling Sands to be played in the deck, but it appears to be running like Seder Wayfinder instead to fill the yard, provide a chump blocker perhaps. And I guess Luris's value in this is like Underworld Breach recursion and maybe Seder Wayfinder recursion. Uh, also Thassa's Oracle re recursion. That's always helpful. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah, Lo Lotus Breach is now a Luris deck. So enjoy. Mind is alone uh, here. Yeah, it's 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 a it's definitely a different deck. Like Vizier seemed kind of like an important part of the deck, but perhaps it's just not. Like perhaps the value of Luris is just stronger. Yeah, I mean another huge note here is that it's not playing Fave Wishes either. Yeah, it's like it's, it definitely has a different strategy, and that's a card that you would use quite often to get Jace out of the sideboard to be able to get your kind of stuff going. So I, this feels like hugely different to me. What's weird is that it could play Fae of Wishes, correct? No, because the Fae is four mana. It's it's one in the one in the blue for Fae of Wishes, but the Grant granted counts. Granted's just a sorcery for three in a blue. So Fae of Wishes is one in a blue, and Granted's three in a blue. So there's no reason it couldn't run this card. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Double oh. checking. Yeah, I I thought that when I was looking at the list, I was like, well, they're not running it, but they could. So. I wonder why they're not running it. I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not a breach player. I don't. I don't participate in the breach discords or breach subreddits. So if if you have some comments, shout at us in the the Reddit thread or in the Slack. Yeah, we'll issue a correction. We're not above that. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting that uh, Everett last week said that he thought that this is the best deck if you're good at piling it in Pioneer, and this deck is continuing to innovate and uh, pretty interesting. Uh, we had two copies of In Soul decks featuring Luris. There was a Jeskai and an Azorius. Um, Azorius is a lot of what we're kind of used to in the In Soul decks, but it also has four Thraben Inspector for Toolcraft Exemplar Main. And we've seen the kind of the all that glitters tech earlier for some more cheap pumping power. I think Thraben Inspector is a little bit interesting. It gives you something to recur with your Luris in your Thraben, but also gives you an artifact on its ETB to, I guess, in soul or skilled animator up. So I guess that's just some value. And also, you know, drawing a card off of your clue is never a bad thing. Once upon a time, when we were talking about, about decks, about pioneer decks, I posited whether Luris can make it into in soul. And I was told no. By whom? By you, Shane. That doesn't seem accurate. I'm pretty sure it was the episode. It was you, me, and Everett, and you guys said skilled animator is too important. But I think as we've all come to learn gradually over the last month or two, is that Luris... Nothing's important as Luris. <laughs> Luris is just better than anything and everything you can do. Yeah, I mean, it looks like it. Um, let's, I want to talk about the Jeskai version in a second down in kind of the cool decks section. Uh, and then the one-ofs in this top 32, we got a Boros Feather featuring Luris, Constrictor featuring Luris, Niv to Light featuring Yorian, and Sultai Delirium, remember this, featuring Jengatha. So besides the inverter decks going back to their roots nine out of 10 times, everything else has a companion. So I think if this was a week ago, 
every one of these decks maybe had a companion besides the Lotus Breach decks. You know, the world keeps turning. We see uh, the tech coming in and out of Inverter, and it's kind of back to its powerful, uh, consistent roots. Wow. That's quite a number. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. I mean, it's, I mean, we've seen Pioneer be even heavier of a companion format than Modern. Um, I, I, like, I like the fact that, you know, Inverter is going companionless again and seeing some results. Um, and I faced Inverter just recently, just today, and it still feels like a crazy good deck. So let's, t- let's talk about the top eight because we'll be talking about some Inverter in there. First place, Cell Dweller on the Garuda Combo. PMC 22337, they're very old, 22337 uh, BCE uh, on Inverter. Uh, Curve Ganhai on Super Friends. Uh, MZ Blazer on Inverter. No Smitipo on Inverter. Shatoon on Super Friends. Blue Side of Life on Azorius Control. Hey, the name fits the deck. And Phil Helmuth. Okay, this is weird. I thought Phil Helmuth on MTGO had a single L. This name has two L's in the Phil. So is this like a secondary Phil Helmuth? Is this the real Phil Helmuth? Or like the, the non-real real Phil Helmuth? I'll never know. Well, this name has has a ton of results. So that's so it is the Phil Helmuth. I think it might be. Yeah. Okay. So they're on burn. So yeah, we saw three inverters, a couple super friends, um, the similar deck in Azorius Control, uh, Garuda Combo, and Burn. So there's our top eight. Nothing particularly novel there besides the combo deck that Dave hated. <laughs> that I mean, it's a real deck in the meta, though. Like lots of people are playing it. I lost to it recently as well. So it's not like it misses. I just I just didn't enjoy playing it. Sure. And it's and it's been refined a bit since you played it. Yeah. yeah, it's got those thought knots here. Exactly. Some interesting decks besides the changes that um, Dave mentioned and probably Stan, I don't know. So S- Scales was here as a one of, and this is a construct heavy version that wants to capitalize on Metallic Mimic, I suppose, with the constructs. Um, it also has two Ozolith, puts in work to keep the counters that you're developing uh, moving around between your creatures if you know you're facing down removal i think scales is still a cool deck i don't know if it's a great deck but i think if i think the the fundamentals are there for a very good deck and the ozolus certainly helps you along those ways and it can you know it can it can be very aggressive it can be resilient i think you can play both sides of that kind of deck where you're not super fragile if you have a, an ozolith or two out there well, i guess you probably only want one because it's legendary uh, the Jeskai and Soul deck that I mentioned earlier. So the Jeskai deck had four Kithian, Hero of Akros, three Zergo Bellstriker, and four Shrapnel Blast, along with a few Wild Slash and Akari Zev's expertise in the side. What was weird here, it had four Mox Amber hmm. to provide ramp off of your 11 legendary creatures. I guess it's kind of a free and soul target that also can provide some ramp if you get a legendary creature down. What do you, Dave, you're, you're a Mox Amberman. What do you think about this 11 legendary? I will say I am not a soul man or an insole. So um, I'm not quite sure about like how to think about building this deck, but it is cool to see a different take on this that has a whole bunch of cards that are not artifacts or not from the, the normal kind of insole shell. I think it's probably all gravy to try to ramp off of off of it. I mean, it's not like 
you're attacking with some of your other insole targets unless you actually get them insoled anyway. So like, why not? And then later on, if you get it a mana bump, it's it's cool. You also, I guess, can put together a credible kind of like aggro plan on your own with all of these like one drop, two power creatures. It's it seems I mean, it just seems a little challenging to me in a heavy burn meta to try to like keep these low toughness one drops around. But and it's, it's like it's just sort of splitting, splitting, splitting a couple strategies into one deck. But it must be doing something or maybe they just ran well. Do you think that they're I mean, you're a burn player. I mean, if you're, you know, let's say you're a burn player. I have, I have played burn. Yes. If you're in, in this deck where somebody's, somebody has up a one drop and a mox amber and you're like, I'm attacking in with my soul scar mage. Are you killing their guy? Or are you trying to go face with the bolt? I think there's plenty of instances where you're going to try to go face with the burn still and just try to outrace them instead of bothering killing their creatures. I, I don't know. I, I don't know if it's every time, but I feel like there's plenty of times where you're just going to be like, fine, let's race. You want to race? Let's race. Yeah. I mean, I think you're right, Rory. Like, you have to save your your burn for probably their in soul targets because, like, you can't have a 5 5 beating down on right. you. So, you're not going to, like, want to plink off their Kithian. You're just gonna, probably going to, like, want to prowess over it or something. Yeah. Perhaps. And I'm not saying that, like I said, every time. I just think it's not, like, a guarantee that you're going to bolt the Kithian. Like, they don't have t shirts that say bolt the Kithian, you know? Yeah. Not yet. It's not the Mox Amber meta yet. Did you mention that this Jeskai deck doesn't run Dark Steel Citadel? I did not. And they seem, it seems like, yeah, that's a sacrifice you would have to make. You can't have a colorless land, probably. Yeah, that feels like a huge sacrifice. So I, That's crazy. I want to. I think I played the most in Soul among the three of us, and I always felt like the Dark Steel Citadel draws were just hands oh down. It's unstoppable. The strongest draws you can have in an in Soul deck. So I, to me, this almost feels like more of an aggro deck that's like suiting up some of, some of its creatures and maybe trying to turn some of its like Mox Ambers into creatures more so than maybe a, a more traditional and soul strategy. Yeah, the, I mean, I'm not personally endorsing this deck. I just thought it was cool. Um, yeah, it's it seems challenging to me. To me, this almost looks like it's more of a Mox Amber deck than an Insole deck, if you know what I mean. Like, it looks like we're trying to make Mox Amber good so that we can maybe put as much power on the board as quickly as possible and then, like, try to close it within, like, four or five turns. But just, it's just, there's just not enough, there's not enough legendary creatures or planeswalkers. It's just like, it's going to be like an Insole target half the time, I think. It's just, it's, it's, it's a wild deck. You got Tomic, though. Yeah, two Tomics. Why not? So yeah, if it, if it interests you, it's the 15th place deck. Uh, Curtis Axel, props to you for reaching 15th with this with this cool deck. Takeaways. This is a metagame. <laughs> nearly, nearly all control and aggro. Small number of variations. We've got 17 control decks, 10 of which are the control combo of Inverter. We've got nine aggro decks and four combo decks. And then like two sort of mid-range-ish decks, right? And then I, I even checked over in the Pioneer Challenge to see if anything interesting was in there. And then not so much. Same stuff. Same stuff we're seeing here. Same metagame. Pretty narrow. Yeah. You guys remember Green Black Stompy? Yeah, remember Mono Black Aggro? Remember Mono Green Planeswalkers? Remember Mono White Devotion or Azorius Devotion? Saltai Delirium? I guess there were a couple of those. Yeah. Yeah, there's one of those. There's one, I think, in, in all in like 64 decks. So it's, it's, I guess it's aggro and combo to get under the controlling like Yorian value decks. And that's it. You got your Yorian-ish value decks and you've got your faster decks or combo way around decks. And 
you know, we talked about Insole. I think in the aggro camp, we've got Burn and Insole seems back. People are experiencing with it. With Luris as a companion, I looked over in the challenges I mentioned and saw the, another different Jeskai version go six and one. Uh, Ross looks like he's back on the deck again with an Azorius variant. He went five two. Uh, definitely an option if you don't want to be running burn but still want to beat down, make some five fives, six sixes. It's for me. I mean, it's a little bit weird. I really do like burn. I'm kind of discouraged that I seemingly can't play anything like mono green walkers right now and succeed. Well, you can't play a deck with a lot of planeswalkers in it. We're going to talk about it in a minute, but they'll be back, though. I want to briefly touch on the inverter stuff, though. Why, why do you think they've gone back to the non Yorian version? Consistency? That's what I want to lean, leaning towards, I guess. Like it, it already had it already had a like a, a, a plan, right? It had a plan. Why dilute the plan? Yeah, it's it's hard to kind of square that circle about taking a combo deck and adding 20 cards to it it's called a callback so i i will say though in preparing for this episode i was still playing yurian inverter decks like i don't think that version is dead yeah. per se I, I guess i feel like control players are likely having a great time in pioneer right now after like a, a fairly a fairly average Azorius control deck existing for the length of the format. And now control seems like it's top dog or control combo at least. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's more combo than control, right? Like it's, it's down the middle there. Yeah. I think that the deck that we were playing this week, the fires deck is more of a control deck than, than that yes. even. Yeah, but exactly. Yeah. I do love this blue, white and soul deck actually. Sorry to, to bring it back once again, but I actually played it a little bit in, in my free time. And I never thought how much I never realized how much I would love Toolcraft Exemplar. One mana three three, or I guess it's a three two. So often, really good. Yeah, that card is a pain to deal with and is very good uh, to add to your aggro plan. So I I, I don't know if, if you guys heard me, but I kind of feel like these mono green Walkers decks, these mono black aggro decks, even maybe one day green black Stompy. I think they're all going to make a comeback. Something we've been noticing at least in pioneer is that a this format super dynamic and even though every new set has a pretty profound impact on like some of the top decks in this format i just feel like we keep seeing this really familiar cast of characters kind of come in and out every month or two you know even in soul we were talking about how in soul is just gone like a week or two ago and then it configured its plan a little bit and here it is again yeah i mean if anything changes, you'll hear it here first on the dive down. To be continued. All right, we're excited to see where Pioneer takes us, so much so that we're going to spend another 90 minutes talking all about a single Pioneer deck. We're going to take a quick break, and when we return, it's all about Jeskai Super Friends. Is it a control deck? Stay tuned to find out. And we're back. So Jeskai, red, white, and blue. Really fitting that we should be recording this on Memorial Day in the United States. Mm -hmm. And this was a really unique and interesting episode because it's this style of deck called Tap Out Control. And we're going to get into a little more detail about what that means. But I don't think we've ever talked about this type of strategy on the podcast. Stan, were you tapping your lands? Because I wasn't tapping mine. I was just casting spells, baby. Sometimes I tap them just to show that I could. <laughs> Float six mana. 
do nothing with it. <laughs> so this week, like Stan said, we're going to talk about a deck that is full of cards that are mostly legal in standard. It's still very good in Pioneer and is maybe even good in Modern or parts of it are good in Modern. So class of 2019, 2020, the world is your oyster. It's your graduation this week because we are talking about Jeskai, Luca, Fires, Yori, and Midrange Control Nouns. Love it. Some adjectives in there. Yeah, there's some stuff. Fit that on your streaming screen, SEG. So, so what is this deck? Okay. I think a lot of people who have been playing Arena lately are familiar with versions of this particular deck. It is popular in Pioneer right now. The first thing to note about this deck, I think, is that as the name hints, when you read this deck list, to me anyway, I was like, what is this deck doing? So I want to give you some highlights if you have not looked at this deck in the past. There's four different Planeswalkers. There's two different Wraths, three other Sorcery Speed removal spells. The only creature card is a seven CMC creature you basically never want to draw. Between the main deck and the sideboard, there are two different permanents that make wall tokens. <laughs> <laughs> Takes me back to Alpha, Dave. Yeah, exactly. There are three, at least three different two CMC non-aura enchantments. There's a four CMC enchantment that's a linchpin of the deck that does nothing without other cards to make it good. And it has Shark Typhoon. So get excited. What's the sound? What's the sound of a shark typhoon? Wet and windy. <laughs> Great. Our ASMR podcast is never going to get off the ground now, unfortunately. So first part, let's talk about what this deck is. We had a long discussion about whether this deck is a control deck or not. In my mind, the way I think about it is that it's a control deck with a few specific interaction packages built around the card Luca, Copper Coat, Outcast, and Yorian. Not those two together, but just packages built around those two cards. So I think what we're going to do is we're going to go through the different plans that are built around those cards in a moment. But one thing I want to talk about really quickly is the style of of control deck that this is like Stan alluded to a moment ago. So when you imagine a control deck, Stan, you love to play control. What, what do you think uh, defines a control deck when you're thinking about it? Often I'm thinking about counter spells. I'm thinking about ways to draw cards on my opponent's end step. If they don't use their mana or if I have mana left over, certainly thinking about some powerful planeswalkers that can accrue card advantage and maybe just win on their own. Sometimes they rhyme with Shmamary. <laughs> what what if I told you that the only thing that you really need out of a control deck, I think to actually have it be a control deck, is that card advantage element that you were talking about. Could you believe that there are control decks out there that don't and potentially can't play counter spells? Just because we can doesn't mean we should, is what I would say to that oh, but at first. <laughs> at first so basically the thing that i want to talk about really quickly is that this style of deck in my mind anyway is what i think has been known in magic for a while as a tap out control deck and it was also one of my favorite brands of clothing just wanted to sneak that in there before anybody else made that joke <laughs> i have the back piece still it's just tap out big on my so this is this is like the other way to annoy your opponent right so like 
like the the draw go is like well, I'm gonna know you by countering your spells and not allowing you to do anything. Mm-hmm. And like this this tap out style control deck is like the I'm gonna annoy you by doing something on my turn that disrupts your game plan. Yeah, I, I don't think it has to necessarily have proactive disruption even to be sure. a control deck. You know, I mean, it, it, so what generally the difference between these two things are is that when you think about playing against a lot of control decks, the decks that Stan was mostly describing is draw-go style is what people call it, where you have your turn, you untap your mana, you draw a card, and then you look at your opponent, you say go. And then they try to do something and then you answer what they do and maybe do another thing on their turn to kind of gain this sort of tempo and card advantage accrual over time. So like flash creatures, like, you know, cycling, like control, like counter spells, counter spells, hieroglyphic illumination. I'm going to draw two cards because you didn't do anything at the end of your turn or during your turn. So now I'm going to use your end step to do something. That's one way to, to, to do a control deck. You gain an uh, advantage over time and then you kind of win once you have the game under your control. The difference between that and a tap out control deck, and I'm going to, uh, it kind of goes like this. And this is a definition that I found in an old PVDDR article from 2012 about the difference between tap out and draw go style control. This article is so old that the, the card tags don't work anymore. Yeah, the formatting is bad. Everything is bad about this article. His little thumbnail photo is also like, he's so young in it. I don't even see it. It's a young PV. Oh, it's at the bottom. Oh, youthful PV. Age comes for us all, my friend. So here's here's the quote of what he says. It's easy to see the difference here from other control decks. This deck has actual zero counter spells, so it has no reason to keep untapped mana and is therefore able to play more powerful spells that the other decks can't afford due to them being at sorcery speed. Yeah, it's interesting. Interesting note, right? Like sorcery speed usually pay pay in pay in like the utility versus the power of the mana. Yeah, and you get to play, your game plan is built up around doing bigger things that are hard for your opponent to answer, and the trade that you make is sorcery speed. And generally what you want to have is some kind of thing that really incentivizes your deck to want to be this style. Whether there's a huge way to get ahead on resources, whether there's some kind of sorcery speed spell that's so big that people can't win once you actually get in a position to cast it, something like that. And I think... You know, why would why would you do this? You know, if you you can win the game, PV's contention here is that a tap out style control deck can win the game more quickly than a draw go control style deck because the power of their their cards kind of scales better into the mid game before falling off into the into the late game. Whereas a draw go deck kind of geometrically scales in power across the whole game. So even though this episode is not a book report on this article. I do think that that position kind of shows how magic has changed over the last eight years, because I think one of the reasons tap out control has kind of become the control strategy du jour across, you know, the formats that we play is because those strategies actually have gotten more proactive at closing out games than some of these tap out strategies have. It's kind of a theory of mine. You know, that, that, that was the mm-hmm. part in PV's article that I really struggled with. Like, if that were the case, I think we would be playing more tap out control in general. And that just like really hasn't been that popular for a while. Right. But there's one specific card that I think really makes it work in this deck and a number of different decks that use this card because it's literally like a flag bearer tap out style control card. And that card is Fires of Invention, right? 
And so let me read the text of Fires of Invention to everybody who's, in case they're not sure what it is. It's a, it's a rare enchantment from Thrones of Eldraine. Costs three generic and a red. Notable, not powerful set. <laughs> yeah. Notable, controlled, well-designed, well-balanced, safe set. Yeah, not another broken card from that set. Anyway, here's the text on the card. You can cast spells only during your turn, and you can cast no more than two spells each turn. That sounds like a limitation, Dave. Yeah, and then the second sentence is, you may cast spells with converted mana costs less than or equal to the number of lands you control without paying their mana costs. Sounds like a benefit, Dave. It sure does. And guess what the benefit is? Basically, what happens is as you go into turns four, five, six, when you actually play Fires of Invention, you suddenly get to play twice as many spells as your opponent. So in this style of of deck, where you're really incentivized to just get that card out as fast as possible to play powerful spells that you wouldn't have been able to or multiple spells when you wouldn't have been able to before. That's basically the definition of of what kind of power a tap out style control deck is looking for win stabilize in the first couple of turns get your your enabler out in this case and then leverage it to be able to spend way more mana than your opponent and do more powerful things than your opponent and so you turn what might be a slight tempo disadvantage in the first few turns into a huge tempo advantage in the mid game and then what happens is you run out of cards to play with this deck quite frequently because you're playing two maybe three spells a turn and then so you run out of gas and so you do i do think that there is a chance that this deck kind of maps well to what pv was talking about his article which is tap out control a little more powerful on turns five six seven and it kind of falls out after that because if you miss your window sometimes you have a hard time recovering did you guys experience that with this deck that you ran out of gas i ran out of cards i wanted i needed to cast i ran out of cards that were useful in the matchup I would have a card that had no utility because it's a 80 card control deck. So I think, I think I kind of agree with Shane. I think we should come back to that after we talk about what all yeah, is in this yeah. deck. But so I think that, you know, it incentivizes you to use all your resources each turn. It makes you unable to play spells on your opponent's turn. It's almost like they had a plan when they designed this card to go into decks that are this style, Right. So let's put a pin in fires for a minute, because I think that while it's a huge enabler, there's another card in this deck that actually really incentivizes the tap out style control as well, or at least makes it a little bit more possible. And that is Teferi Time Raveler. Notably safe, balanced, well-loved card as well. Yeah. Look, everybody knows what this card does. I'm not going to read it, but I will read the, the static ability so people remember each opponent can cast spells only anytime they can cast a sorcery. This is a way for you to put shields up on your turn so you can do your powerful stuff without getting messed with. And so these two cards together lead to a deck that can really exploit, again, the idea of I'm just going to play as big a spells as I can every turn and hope that I'm in a position where my opponent can't do anything with it. Or I'm going to play a number of spells that it's hard for them to keep up with. A number of powerful spells, I should say, that it's hard to keep up with. Yeah, so P, I don't think in, in PV's greatest imagination in 2012 could he think of something like Fires of Invention and talking about a tap-out style control deck where you're getting this much mana advantage as early as turn four, right? Yeah. You know, So you're slapping down Fires on turn four, you're able to cast another four CMC spell from your hand and then next turn cast 10 mana of spells if you have another land in hand right so this is i I agree with you dave where it's like fires is the kind of card that allows you to say 
I, I'm not going to be able to counter your spells, but I'm going to cast, you know, I'm going to basically have Karn, the, Karn liberated and another three mana spell along for the ride worth of mana on turn five. Um, and so, and we know the, the power of Planeswalkers has increased and I'm kind of, you know, jumping the gun here, but I think people can get the idea of what's going on. Yeah. And I was going to say, as we close the book on Teferi, like the evolution and, and, uh, sort of pervasiveness of Planeswalkers in general are very tap out controlly. They're sorcery speed cards. They, their activated abilities go at sorcery speed. And so, you know, they, there's kind of all these things that allow this game style play to, I think, thrive right now. Uh, and that's why I think this deck has sort of come around recently. Yeah, the interesting thing about Planeswalkers is when you put them into these draw-go control decks, there's this tension that occurs where you don't know whether you're supposed to hold up interaction or counterspell or removal spell or whatever, or if the coast is clear to actually tap out. And I'd sort of love the theory here, which is let's just go all in on tapping out because we can't play interaction because some of the drawbacks on fires, but we can still kind of control the stack, which is what control is usually good for. But now we only need to do that by resolving this one to fairy that essentially gives you a little bit more control over the stack during half of the game. Yeah, and part of that too, like laddering off of what you were just saying, some of it is just about playing a bunch of cards that are must answers, right? Where it's like, well, I'm going to play Teferi on turn three. Do you have an answer? Well, I'm going to play Fire Fires on turn four, turn four. Do you have an answer? Oh, now I'm going to play Luca on turn five. Do you have an answer for that? And so it's just kind of like piling on top of stuff in that way. You can also sort of outrun decks with interaction in that way as well. Every deck becomes a Tron deck if you wait long enough. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So what is it about Fires of Invention that makes this deck so good right now? I have a theory. And this is kind of piggybacking off, you know, a subject we were talking about two episodes ago when we were talking all about advantages. And what really felt true for this strategy in particular was that I'm winning in the game of economy of actions. It's, it's more than just, you know, we can cast two spells per turn, depending on how much mana we have. We're always going to be able to spend more mana than our opponent has access to. So even if maybe we don't have a ton of one-for-one one removal along the way, eventually we could just do more things than the opponent can. And hopefully the deck has enough powerful things to do where it doesn't matter and, you know, you can claw back from a, a losing position or pull forward from a parity position. But what does that economy of action really mean in like the current meta? And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that these Luris decks, which seem to be everywhere, it's like the other side of Pioneer next to Yurion, are these burn strategies, these aggro strategies that, you know, sometimes they have point removal, but really they're just casting like a couple spells per turn and maybe interacting with your opponent on like a one-for-one -one basis in a pretty slow, grindy way. And I feel like what Fires of Invention and Yurion kind of enable is that your spells get to do more in general than what some of these like slower mid-rangey Luris decks are capable of. So now that we've talked a little bit about kind of the way that this deck is put together as this sort of infrequently occurring archetype that it is, uh, why don't we talk about the way that we leverage this kind of game plan, the tap out kind of game plan, it with the cards that we use to win and also the cards that we kind of in it use to enable us getting to our situations where we get to win. So first things first, in my limited experience with the deck, I think that this deck does try to win the same way that a control deck does win. 
through the accrual of small advantages that become big advantages, card advantage, parlaying that into a board advantage, and then killing people from there. Like that's, that's kind of what we're trying to do. So the methods are different, but the game plan itself isn't from most control decks in my mind, even doesn't feel like it. So the way that I see it, there's kind of three interlocking plans that this deck tries to, uh, to use to get you to a win. And we're going to talk about each one in a little, a little bit of depth. The first one revolves around everybody's new favorite thing to complain about on Arena. And that is Luca going into Luca Coppercoat Outcast going into Agent of Treachery to kind of take specific permanents from opponents, deny them resources, and add to our, to our board and winning from there. The second planned or like package that's within this deck, I think, is using Yorian to blink, restart, get extra draws off of permanents, reset planeswalkers, and use your fires better by being able to cast more cards with it that way. And then the third one, I think, is kind of a more standard plan where if you don't get any of the big kind of like wombo payoffs or aren't really in a great advantageous Yorian position, you have a whole lot of planeswalkers in this deck that are specifically good against different archetypes. And so you use that to disrupt their plan in a sort of passive way with a static ability or something like that, and then ride that to victory as well. That also gets us to an advantage that we can use leverage with with Fires of Invention as well. So of course, now we know what those are, but getting there is kind of like the rest of the battle. So let's talk about each plan in depth a little bit. Yeah. Let's start with Luca and Agent of Treachery, just because this is the flashy new combo that you know on some level makes this deck as strong as it is fires of invention is really important it's like the linchpin to the strategy but access to this combo is one of the things that is i find most broken here can we talk about like how pedestrian this combo seems on its face where it's like here's my five mana planeswalker that requires me to have a creature on the board that I want to sacrifice to get that to get to one of my two of creatures that I hopefully haven't drawn already that only steals something and it's a two <laughs> yeah and especially like considering that Lucas sometimes he's playing modern where you can actually get it out before turn five you're never ramping here it's it, it's very fair in that way like you're only ever going to cast Luke on turn five or later yeah so let's read the cards first. So the first card in this combo, the one that has the real ability that's annoying everybody is Agent and Treachery, right? It's a rare from M20. It's kind of a limited looking bomb. Like it looks like the best draft card you've ever seen in your life. It's five blue, blue. It's a human rogue. It's a two, three. And it says when Agent of Treachery enters the battlefield, gain control of target permanent. And at the beginning of your end step, if you control three or more permanents you don't own, draw three cards. How often did that happen for you guys? Zero. Zero. Same. Yep. Didn't happen for me ever either. So the other side of this combo that we've alluded to, because nobody's paying seven for this, well, is Luca Coppercut. Well, you're right. It's not nobody's ever playing seven. The A plan is not to pay seven for this. The A plan is to cheat this in, into... Though this deck can. I mean, when push comes to sub, you do get to seven mana eventually. Yeah, a whole, a whole, two, a whole two mana of cheating. <laughs> Here. This is again what I'm talking about. This is not this is not some crazy busted like cheat here. This is not like I'm not a I'm not through the breaching Emrakul here. Yeah. And so the card is Luca Coppercoat Outcast. It's a planeswalker from Akoria. It costs three generic red red. 
plus one, exile the top three cards of your library. Creature cards exiled this way gain. You may cast this card from exile as long as you control a Luca Planeswalker. Guess what? The only creatures you have in your deck are Agent of Treachery. The minus two is exile target creature you control, then reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature card with higher converted mana cost. Put that card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. And then minus seven, each creature you control deals damage equal to its power to each opponent. Luca's starting loyalty is five. So pretty simple. You use the minus two to sacrifice something to go get an agent of treachery. I never once used the plus ability in a single game in countless matches in preparation for this episode. I think you literally should not use the plus one. Yeah, I think I messed up doing so. Like I felt like I was actively hurting my strategy when I was plussing it, and I realized it after the fact. Unless you're playing against Inverter and you use your Agent of Treachery to steal opponent's Jace, Wielder of Mysteries, and then you try to mill yourself out of your 80-card deck, do not plus. Wow. That's an unbelievable move there. That's called a corner case, David. Yeah, definitely. So we can talk about the ways that this deck gets creatures into play to sacrifice to the minus two. But do we want to talk about just like Agent Treachery, Luca, Shane's concerns a little bit before we get on to like how we enable the the sacrificing? Yeah, like like how good is it? How good did it feel? Like what, what were you able to do with it? Because I, I share your concern a little bit here too, Shane, where I'm like, this doesn't seem that great, but... It turned out to be pretty great when I was playing it. I think the the sort of greatness comes from not from doing it once, but from doing it many times, which Yorian enables. So like, a, you know, you have an agent of treachery on the board, you cast your Yorian, you blink your agent. It, it, notice that there's no text on agent of treachery that says until agent of treachery leaves the battlefield or anything like that. So you just get another thing. And I'm sure if you play standard, you've probably seen this interaction where a single agent can steal a few of your things and annoy you. And so that's kind of a nice thing to be able to do with it. I mean, being able to take a permanent is nice. You can take someone off their mana. You can take a planeswalker. You can take whatever their biggest creature is. So there's all sorts of things that agent allows you to do that many similar effects do not. And also it's yours. So it's like, you know, Stan mentioned in our breakdown and then sold up Darksteel Citadel sure is scary when it's on the other side of the battlefield until it's yours. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting because it's a in a creature, mostly in a creature matchup, it becomes a card that is a removal spell and also casts another creature for you. So it's a massive kind of card advantage and tempo swing in that in that way. I found it very infrequent that I actually got a second trigger off of a single agent. What I did more often was get an agent, then sacrifice, you know, get a creature, then sacrifice the creature that I got to Luca a second time, get the other agent, and then get another permanent from them. And by then, I was kind of so far ahead that it was really happening at that point. But yeah, I thought this card was just very skill testing and kind of epitomizes like some of the most challenging decisions when it comes to playing control, where you have to pay attention to what your opponent doesn't want you to steal. And Shane, you mentioned that you can take opponents off of mana, but I don't want to understate how powerful that can be. Like if you're paying attention to how many lands your opponent has, or if you can get your Agent of Treachery out on turn five, which is like conceivably the soonest you can get it out and start taking them off of their lands. I think like that's how you expedite your win. And that's when Agent can be most powerful. 
I mean, it's a big swing. Like imagine you're playing a mirror, right? Which you're going to play a decent amount of. If you're on the play, you get an agent down, you steal one of their lands, then you're able to untap, you're able to bring in your Yorian off of your fires, for instance, you blink your agent, you get another one of their lands. If they brick on a land drop, they're down to like three, you know, they're really not going to come back from that because they have to have their mana engine even to say, get their fires going or take advantage of their fires. Yeah. I found the the most interesting me about this, honestly, was in the games that I played, a lot of times when I got agent into play, people just quit. Yeah. I had some, I had some stubborn opponents. I, I thought it was really weird because I definitely was in a lot of these situations was like, well, there's no real reason for someone to quit here. I don't understand why they felt I was that far ahead from it, but it was just like snap concede. Like I had splinter twinned them. So that's, that's the Luca and agent of treachery plan, right? It's you know, powerful. It's hard to know what permanent you're supposed to take. I think in lots of situations. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think skill testing is a great way to put it, Stan. It's powerful, but skill testing. Let's talk really quick about the two cards that are in this deck that help enable Luca's minus two, because I think that they're worth just kind of discussing quickly because their whole reason for being in the deck is that they make creature tokens. The first one is Bir- the Birth of Miletus, which is a saga from Theros Beyond Death. It costs a generic and a white, and it's three phases. The first one says, search your library for a basic planes card, reveal it, put it into your hand, then shuffle your library. The second chapter is create an 04 colorless wall artifact creature token with defender. And the third chapter is you gain two life. This card is not something that I ever would have thought was constructed playable, like reading through the spoilers. But now when I see it, I'm kind of like, wow, you get a land. So you make sure you make your land drop. You get a creature that kind of helps you in the aggro matchups and it enables Luca. And then you gain two life. And that's just helpful in aggro matchups as well. I found myself blinking these with Yorian a lot. Mm-hmm. Totally. To get those extra planes. Yep. Um, you know how much I wish that Castle Ardenvale was a planes type land <laughs> a lot well yeah. not only getting the extra lands but getting those extra walls off chapter two i found to be yeah. especially important i think i i frequently played this card too early where i couldn't i would play it on turn two and it's like impossible to get yorian out in time to blink it before it disappears off of the chapter three yeah i mean i think the truth is if you don't have a different two drop this is the two drop to play. Yeah. Like sure. you want to be spending your mana, setting yourself up. And so it's not like you can pass. Like if you have a, a, a sorcery speed removal spell in this and they don't have a creature, I'm, I'm playing this. You You're know? not trying to maximize my wall creation necessarily. I mean, a lot of times I just wanted the land to be honest. I like yes. the wall was something that I wanted long-term, but in the short term, I wanted the planes. Agreed. Exactly. Yeah. Next card, shark typhoon. Every, <laughs> you know it, you love it. I, I don't, I'm not even going to read the normal text on this card, the enchantment text on this card. I guess I will. It costs five generic and a blue. It's an enchantment. It says whenever you cast a non-creature spell, create an XX blue shark creature token with flying where X is that spell's converted mana cost. Uh, it has cycling X one generic and a blue. When you cycle shark typhoon, create an XX blue shark with creature token with flying. I have to ask. When I was playing this card, I was like, "There ha- is there no other card that cycles and creates a token that's like more efficient than this? Like, I don't really care about kind of the flying part necessarily. Is this like the first card that did anything like this? That I know of. Yeah, certainly in, in Pioneer it is. Okay. 
Also, this card is sweet. Like this card is super powerful. Yeah. It makes a giant it makes an air elemental at instant speed that's uncounterable. Sometimes I think I think this is pretty efficient as far as cards like this go. I am not complaining. I'm just I was just curious. I also I don't think you should overlook the enchantment side. Especially once you're going off with Fires of Invention and you can put down a Shark Typhoon as a permanent, then all of your Planeswalkers put extra power on the board. And I found that really important. I was going to ask you if you did that, because I didn't have any games where I, I did that. But it certainly occurred to me as sort of a backup plan to everything is like, maybe I am just casting Shark Typhoon in this deck and trying to go off and get a bunch of flyers. Yeah, I think I think I missed out on that opportunity. Yeah, it's really good. Try it sometime. Yeah. So this is one of those things. Alternate wind con, shark typhoon, but a lot of times you're going to use it to make a token with for Luca. Okay, so that's plan number 1. It's the coolest, it's the most interesting plan that's in the that's in this new deck. Plan number 2 is gaining massive advantage with Yorian, right? So the second plan in this deck, it's all about Yorian. Everybody's talked about Yorian. It's the most popular companion probably by count at this point in pioneer it seems like although the inverter decks are going to swing that around a lot if you're an inverter's popular it's going to go way up if they're not it's going to go way down super popular in modern too i think we all know yorian it's a five drop that's hybrid azorius mana with three generic uh so it's three wuwu it makes you play with at least 20 Cards more than the minimum deck size. It has flying, and it says when Yorian enters the battlefield, exile any number of other non-land permanents you own and control. Return those cards to the battlefield at the beginning of the next step. Next end step. Sorry. So this is why this deck is nearly entirely permanence-based, right? With the exception of things that control the board, like Wraths. So... If you do not have your Luca plan coming up, one thing that you can do to pull way ahead on turns five, six, and seven, basically, is just to play Yorian out onto a board that has fires or has a bunch of your permanents out on there and just reset them. Try to get some extra cards, some extra Planeswalker loyalty, and go on your merry way from there. Oh, Planeswalker loyalty. Narset Parter Avails. Oh my god. This almost feels like the best Narset deck I've ever played just because... Sometimes she draws you like four, five cards. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, getting to reset a Teferi and bounce something again later is super good. It's really interesting in this deck because, you know, since we cannot play counters, we don't really have ways to protect a lot of our permanents. You know, ones that are vulnerable to creature attack and, you know, Elder Spell and whatever, whatever stuff like that. We can't interact in that way. But when we play several permanence out we do have the chance to kind of have one or two survive through oncoming creature onslaughts basically so yeah sometimes you get a rebuy of of uh, teferi sometimes you get a rebuy of narset they're both amazing sometimes you get a rebuy of gideon and it's a little bit less good yeah (laughs) or a lot less good (laughs) that was that was the worst yeah the other thing to note is that the the strong card that really combos with this flash ability, the uh, blink ability, though, is Omen of the Sea. And Omen of the Sea is a card that I just think people should recognize. It's super powerful. It gets play across every format, right? You know, every modern pioneer and standard format right now. And Omen of the Sea is a generic and a blue. It's an enchantment. It has flash. And it says when Omen of the Sea enters the battlefield, scry two, then draw a card. And then it has an activated ability that says two generic and a blue sacrifice omen to the sea scry two. 
yeah, I always love casting this card. Like it's it's just really nice early to set up your future draws. I mean, it, it gets a card into your hand that you've selected mm-hmm. from the top two of your deck, which is really nice. You know, people say that you know a card like Serum Visions is just the worst cantrip because you're just sort of drawing in the blind. Omen lets you dig two, then draw one of those. And also, if you want the second card, set it up for your next draw. It's a yeah, great. It's definitely. It's seeing. It feels worth the mana, which is surprising. Yeah, and just keep in mind that the text of Omen of the Sea that comes into play is preordained. Like that's that's what Omen of the Sea is. It's got flash. That's awesome. Uh, so it's it's a super powerful effect, and it's a card that's banned in modern. Preordain is so. You also get to rebuy a lot of your removal suite with Yorian. Whether you have Oath of Chandra, you know, there's uh, Omen of the Forge, I think is the name of the red the red omen that can do two damage to something that you can rebuy with this. Baffling End is in a lot of these decks. So is Elspeth Conquers Death. All of these things are things that, you know, either exile a, term, uh, exile a creature or do three damage to a creature. So you get to rebuy your removal suite too. I, I do want to say here that I never want to blink Baffling End because usually we're trying to remove our opponent's creatures and when you blink it, they get a dinosaur that's sometimes bigger than whatever it was that you blunk. Yes. I think it's important just to keep in mind for like problematic combo-y type pieces that you really need off the board and you don't care if you get hit back with a vanilla 3-3 instead. Sometimes it's not true, or sometimes you can blink it and they get Baffling End back and you can take a hit and then bounce it with Teferi or something. So there's there's other things you can do as well. Um, but yeah, sometimes you got to do what you got to do. Uh, so mostly the one thing that we want to talk about with Yorian's trigger for everybody to just keep in mind is that the cards don't come back until the beginning of your end step. And so something that people can quite... for forget sometimes or i did was like try to blink a planeswalker thinking that i'm going to reuse one of the activated abilities on that turn i'm not some sometimes if you bring yorian out and blink some stuff they can just kill your yorian and then come in and kill the planeswalker that you just blinked and it doesn't really do you much good to to do that and so you really need to think ahead like how is your opponent going to respond and then try to figure out, well, what advantage am I going to have that I can take advantage of the next turn? That's also why stuff like Omen of the Sea, the things with comes into play abilities are, are much better. You know, Agent of Treachery and stuff like that, as, as powerful as Blinken of Planeswalker is. So mostly this end of play, end of turn thing is a drawback. But there is one case where I think it is very much not a drawback. And that is you can use Yorian to turn off fires of invention for the second half of a turn. If you want to, which gives you a chance to cast a spell with fires, cast Yorian with fires, blink fires, then cast one or two more spells, depending on how much uh, mana you have out on the board fires comes back and your whole board is kind of reset back to what you want it to be on the next turn. So it's a way for you to really go off and get three times your mana on a turn instead of, instead of just two. Yeah, that definitely rules. There's a lot of times when you have many five mana spells and you're like, well, I get all these down now. I, I did find that the Urion strategy here is a little different than what you may be used to in modern, where you've got astrolabe and abundant growth. And in, in decks like that, Urion like, just actually draws you cards when it enters the battlefield, or at least that's what it feels like. That doesn't happen here as consistently. There's like a little bit of element of that, thanks to Omen of the Sea and thanks to Narset, sometimes thanks to Teferi, but 
sometimes like Yurion is just your way of actually removing permanence and it can kind of be positioned to be whatever you need considering the matchup or whatever board state you're trying to deal with. And what, just to build off of what Stan's saying and what I said earlier, you don't have any way to protect Yorion once it comes into play. Oh, no, you don't. So it's going to die a lot. So yeah. your plan really can't be with this deck. I'm going to beat down with Yorion unless you somehow have gotten to the point where your opponent doesn't really have cards left in their deck or something like that or in their hand or something like that, where you're you're pretty sure you're out you're out ahead and you're like, OK, I'm going to swing with a four, four, five flyer a couple times and that's going to be it. Um, you're mostly using it for those triggers. So the things you're getting out of those triggers have to be really well thought out and specific. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's a good point, Dave. I think I was sort of looking to stick Yorian as as a Sarah Angel with some upside. And so frequently it just, you know, ate a removal spell of some kind. It ate a hero's downfall. It ate uh, whatever that new spell that kills something without counters. And I'm just like, well, that didn't do, that didn't do a lot for me here didn't feel great yeah yeah i think you almost have to be a little more conservative with the urion in this in this deck unless you know it's going to give you a little bit of value just because there aren't as many ways to get etb value in in the strategy like this one yeah and also your deck doesn't have any creatures in it so if you're especially if you're in game one against somebody you know they're either holding up removal to kill your sacrifice targets the the cards you're going to try to sacrifice to luca or they're just have a hand with two or three removal spells in it to just kill Yorian whenever it hits the board. So you just can't really use it that way. Yeah. All right. So the third plan is just trying to kind of outvalue and disrupt people with planeswalkers. It's sort of like the fallback non combo E plan. Right. And I think there's two planeswalkers here that really do a ton of work in this shell that might not be in every other, you know, blue, white, or just guy control shell, and that's Gideon of the Trials and Narset Parter Avails. Yeah. And of course, you know, Gideon is sort of main board tech against Inverter, right? Like, you can use it to turn off some threats in an aggro matchup. You can uh, use it to attack sometimes, but a lot of what you're doing or a lot of the value that this gets is being a card that's pretty good in the matchup against Inverter and buys you some time to get your plan online as a must-deal-with threat that, for them. Right. And so this deck doesn't have Big Teferi, which I think was something that we kind of had to get used to. Sometimes it'll play like that new Narset. I've seen that come and go since this deck was formed. But I think Gideon here is not only good against Inverter, which is so popular in the meta, but it is one of your win conditions. When you can turn it into a creature, it will swing and it will stick around. Plus, it helps protect you because of its emblem as well. Yeah, there was a lot of times when I was just desperate for any sort of board presence, right? Where it's like, even this even this agent of treachery and like whatever little creature I stole from my opponent, like let's say like an insole opponent, where this, this, the first time they're going to get any kind of insole effect, they're going to have a 5-5 five five on the other side of the battlefield, and I'm not likely going to be able to keep up any longer. And so having a Gideon is great because it's just a reliable clock, I think, along with the other associated benefits. Plus his plus ability does also protect you from opposing permanence and threats as well. For sure. Very important. Yeah, I used it to turn off an Eidolon 
a lot of the great revel in the burn matchup, which I think is something, you know, it's the type of thing I felt clever when I did it. I was like, now I can cast my spells for without a uh, worry. Yeah. And also Narset, you know, when we were playing this deck, one of the first things that I was wondering was why aren't we doing treasure cruiser dick through time since we have access to them. And I did find that this deck is pretty good at filling up the graveyard. Like either your sagas, sometimes you actually have fetch lands and fabled passage. Sometimes you're cashing in your omens so that you get that scry. And, you know, over the course of a game, you can actually delve. Cycling lands. Exactly. You can delve to these big spells. And I found that like in the end, Narset is just better than all of those cards because you get to trigger her so frequently and it doesn't make you vulnerable to opponent's potential graveyard hate or opponent's narset because she's not a draw ability she's a choose ability and narset's outrageous like narset is one of the cards that makes me want to play a deck like this because it just feels like such good selection and ongoing selection and i felt like i don't know about you but I felt like I, I could chain Narsets a lot yeah. with with the, with the mana advantage that you have in the fires engine, <laughs> where it's like you know you have you have the ability where it's like well normally casting this Narset would feel like a huge tempo loss. All I'm doing is like replacing a Narset, but like because I can cast two spells and I you know I minus my Narset, I cast the spell that I drew off the Narset, and I have this extra Narset lying around. So heck. Let's just get this down too and replace her. And also, do not forget about Narset's static ability and how good is it is is against decks that run like Opt, basically, and and other decks that run dig, uh, Treasure Cruise and stuff like that. Like it's um it's a powerful static, and it's something that lots of decks rely on a little bit of incidental cantripping to get by, and she just gets in the way of that. It's much less in Pioneer than it is in Modern, uh, of course, but uh, it's I think it's still sticks so we've talked about some of these really powerful cards and some of these plans but i just want to bring this section home actually talk about what this deck is doing to win because if you're not david and your opponents aren't scooping to you and like <laughs> you're a normal person like the rest of us i did find that like this deck is often just winning through creature combat wh whether it's shark tokens whether it's urians some i mean agent can get in there but gideon's get in there i had a, I had a hard time closing out some games i'll be honest where it's like i have just a, like maybe a planeswalker that's not really drawing a lot of cards i have a i have a luca on the board i've got a narset at one it's not doing anything for me anymore they they killed my yorian uh you know five turns ago i'm just i'm desperate for anything i'm desperate for a land that's going to make me a token i'm desperate for a birth of Miletus, and i'm just hoping to to get some kind of gas to just close this dang game out yeah yeah, I mean, all decks have bad matchups, and that sounds that kind of sounds like a losing position, to be honest. Well, I mean, I, I feel like I shouldn't be in a losing position. I mean, I'm kind of cutting to the chase a little bit, where it's like, if I'm against a, a deck like In Soul, I feel like I should be able to out top deck a deck like In Soul, but I didn't feel like I was frequently. Well, let's let's save that for the matchup area. I think the main thing that this deck looks like, something that maybe we should kind of um, say, I think that when, by the time you get to creature combat, hopefully you have three or four more cards in hand than your opponent does, right? And so if they play something and you bounce their threat with a Teferi and then swing in with your, your agent of treachery and your Gideon, 
and then they play their threat again. Hopefully you can play another Teferi or something and bounce bounce their thing, or you know, you can exile their card with an Elspeth Conquers Death, or you can have a, your Elspeth Conquers Death trigger the third third chapter and then get another card back out of the graveyard. I, I found that this deck really kind of when I was playing it right and when it was doing well, I was just ahead of them on cards. And so I just kind of ground them out and that's when I started being able to attack it. And so, yeah, you do kill through creature combat eventually, but it really is more about like neutralizing their threats and taking their cards away with agent of treachery so that you get to then go ahead and execute, you know, your plan without disruption basically. So it is kind of like a classic control kill in that way to me anyway other than my opponent scooping because they were frustrated. All right, so we talked about the enablers that are in this deck. We talked about the plans that are enabled by those cards, the the overall kind of like macro plans. The last thing that we have to do is talk about the rest of the cards in this deck, which are essentially the cards that buy you time to get to your plans, right? These are cards that essentially fall into two buckets in this 80-card monstrosity. One is cards that kill creatures, And the other category is cards that draw cards. Does that sound about right? Yeah. I mean, we have some of, you know, your favorite Supreme Verdict, you know, your, your blue, white, uncountable wrath. Everyone knows what that does. Yep. Let's talk about Deafening Clarion a little bit. I thought this was an interesting one. Yeah. Every deck has, every list that I've seen of this has multiple copies of Deafening Clarion in, in there. So it's one red, white sorcery. Choose one or both. It's funny because... I always choose both, even if I don't have any creatures. <laughs> yeah. So def- Deafening Clarion deals three damage to each creature, and creatures you control gain lifelink until end of turn. So always choose both, because it's fun too. Um, so basically, it's a, it's a three damage mini wrath. It's like an anger of the gods that does an exile and involves Boros mana instead of red red. Why, why not anger? Like, is it the double red? I think that's part of it. I think that's a big part of it. Just because this deck skews blue-white. And you can even see that in the selection of basic lands you have. Like, you've got one mountain often, maybe even only one island, and then a bunch of plains. So I think actually getting to that red mana can be really hard sometimes. And, I mean, like, you kind of have to save it maybe for your Luka or your your fires. But also, can I just say, like, I actually think that lifelink ability came up a lot for me especially if I had a Yorion out or a big shark or a Gideon, especially when like burn is pretty popular right now. I thought that lifelink was pretty important. And the nice thing about having multiple wraths is that you can position yourself toward that point where you can like have a threat that survives Clarion and then also like gains you some life to start to claw back. Yeah. I guess it makes it sort of not a dead card late in the game too where if you're kind of like i'm going i'm mostly ahead they only have one creature i could kill it with baffling end or something but i'm going to play clarion because i also get to gain some life off of it with my the card i attack with through treachery and something like that mm-hmm. right i never got in this situation maybe i should have done that more often because i had a bunch of losses against burn where to the point where i was kind of like this deck feels like it's maybe too slow against burn but maybe i just wasn't leveraging deafening clarion enough i also wasn't playing omen of the sun by the way which is a card that we're not really going to talk about in this breakdown but i've seen in a couple of lists uh since i played the deck this is a dive down david those are your yeah, sorry <laughs> for the dive down <laughs> so anyway, those are your wraths right every control deck has wraths 
The other removal category, of course, is spot removal. And we talked about it a little earlier. It's all enchantment-based so that you can blink it with Yorian, right? It's baffling end to get a 3CMC creature or less, Elspeth Conquered's Death to get a 3CMC creature or more, and Oath of Chandra to get an X3, Omen of the Forge to get X2s. It's important that Elspeth Conquered's Death is any permanent yeah. 3CMC or greater. That's like your detention sphere sort of effect that you can get rid of something else with. Also a very good mirror breaker, I found. You know, unlike some control mirrors you hate to see an opposing three mana to fairy i don't care if my opponent has a three mana to fairy because i'm not playing at instant speed but whenever opponent casts elspeth conquers death against me or vice versa that feels like a really effective way to kind of pull them back from the advantage they've been accruing yeah you can take their fires with it among other things so great point the other thing about all of those omens is that you are able to play them while Fires is on the board and get small restrictions because they have activated abilities, right? So the Omens give you a chance to be able to do other stuff with your mana on Fires turns. We're going to talk about that more later on. That's just kind of something to bear in mind about why the Omens are extra good in this shell. So let's talk about the cards that draw cards now. We talked about these already earlier in other parts, but the most important cards that get us through our deck are Omen of the Sea and Narset Parter Veils, with an honorable mention to Shark Typhoon. Right? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Both are essential to get to our Luka. They get us to our Shark Typhoon, all kinds of things. Omen of the Sea digs a ton. It, it essentially can let you see up to five cards um, and have a have a preview of. You know, Teferi can help you bounce and draw a card sometimes. I usually find that is very helpful if I'm foundering a little bit to be able to get that tempo advantage. It's a great, you know, it's one of the, one of the other reasons that Teferi 3 is so good. Uh, Bertha Miletus, I feel like, counts as like a bit of a draw because you get that planes off of it. I usually felt pretty good about that because in control decks, and in this deck in particular, you want to drop a land every turn. Mm-hmm. That's just how it works. And you're light on two drops in general. Yeah. And, you know, Omen of the Sea is still good in the mid to late game. This right. gets worse as the game goes on, I found. For sure. This card is way better at the beginning. I think you're totally right. Um, and then f- finally, this deck has seven cycling lands in it. It's got four of the new triomes, the Jeskai triomes that are called R- Raugrin, Raugrin triomes. I'm not even going to try to pronounce any of these. Yeah. And three irrigated farmlands. I find the cycling ability on these lands came up a ton again, because they're mana sinks for fires basically. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I love about this is they're good against your opponent's Narsets. You know, it's not uncommon for someone to have a Narset. And these is these cycling lands in particular and just cyclers in general are one of the few ways to draw cards at instant speed. So if your opponent has a Narset and you've already drawn your card for turn, just save it for opponent's end step or whatever and problem solved. There you go. Okay. So now we're done with the cards that are in the main main version of this deck. I think what we should do is go back and talk about how to make sure you get the most out of what is really the most powerful card in this deck, which is fires of invention. Yeah, I think that's, you know, this, this is the engine or this is one of the most important engines. And so maximizing it, I think is really key to getting as much of an edge as you can. And it was hard. There are some times where I just made mistakes because I forgot all the text on fires of invention. So here we have a few little heuristics, some best practices to remember, and maybe some tips to just get you thinking about this card in the best way. The first one is very level zero, which is I 
forgot a couple of times when I first was playing this that it's not that you have to tap your lands one time and then cast a spell off of fires one time. You can cast both of your spells off of fires. Yeah. So do it. Leave your mana open. Cast the spells off of fires. Click that second the second line of that box yeah. on Moto. Was there ever any situation where you had fires out and you still just chose to cast the spell in an old-fashioned way? <laughs> just for kicks? I couldn't think of any situation where that actually made a lick of sense. No, not when it's out. I mean, it's the kind of thing where, like, we talked about earlier where you blink it out of existence with your Yorian, then you tap your mana, then it comes back type thing. But, yeah. So, more importantly, or more interestingly, I think, the the thing that's cool about Fires plus the mana base in Pioneer is that you do not get punished for comes into play tapped lands. So, if you play your shock land on turn six, tapped, you still get to cast six mana cards off of Fires of Invention. It also makes a late game temple feel not bad at all. Not only because of that scry, but it kind of like counts like a normal land would. Yeah. And so that was huge to me to think about because I kind of felt like, oh, I've got all these terrible tap lands, so I'm going to be behind all the time. Not so once you get Fires on the board. So keep that in mind as you're planning future turns. It's kind of an adjustment to your mental math. And it's fixing. You know, just as another annoying, cool benefit, you know, it's like you, you don't care what lands you have after you've got a fires down. Yeah. It's like, sure, just uh, Triome or Basic Plains doing the same thing for me. That's totally true. Yep. Yeah. At the same time, you kind of want to be careful when you're trying to do some level two plays of resetting your fires of invention. So, for instance, I tried to, in one game, cast two spells off of fires bounce it back with Teferi, cast it again, it doesn't work. Fires will remember if you've cast two spells in a turn. At that point, you kind of just want to hold it back. So if you want to cast more than two spells per turn, you just can't recast that Fires of Invention. You saved me from myself, Stan, because I, I was like, am I losing an edge, not like bouncing my my fires with Teferi, and apparently I didn't. Yeah, but like we talked earlier, you do get an edge for blinking it with Yorian. And that's for a different reason. So just keep that in mind. You you do get to drop that third five drop uh, if it's in the exile zone and coming back at the beginning of your end step, basically. So one of the things that I was looking for were opportunities, because you're not tapping your mana with fires, what are we able to do in this deck with our untapped mana that is not a second spell? Like, right, like, so you're casting two free spells and you got like 12 lands available to use. What kind of things were we looking to do besides casting a giant shark, of course, or cycling a giant shark? Yeah, I mean, cycling a giant shark is one of the big ones. You know, it's basically you want to look for things that are activated abilities instead of instead of uh, casting spells. Right. And so there's a lot of cards in this deck that have them. The omens have them. Shark Typhoon has it. The cycling lands have it. And finally, Castle Ardenvale and Castle Vantress are kind of huge in this. I mean, it's interesting that they we only play one of each of those in a deck with so many lands because they are really good. Like having the ability to Castle Vantress and then still cast two spells on a turn is gigantic. Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons we have so few of them is you can't really afford to have a lot of basic lands in this deck because you need to have your 
mana tap for as many colors as possible in the early game and sometimes in the late game depending on what you're actually activating but like the hands where you open with some basics actually felt like they could be pretty bad in certain situations Mm -hmm. let's let's talk a little bit about the the cycling lands like at what point were you all no longer concerned with making land drops and instead we're like okay i'm just going to cycle my stuff away I, I mean the what's what's the most we can we can cast in this deck typically like a seven for sure yeah you can definitely cast agent of treachery sometimes in this deck just you don't want to that usually means you're pretty far behind but sometimes it just means you've played a really good control game and now you're you're hard casting it instead mm-hmm. so yeah i think one thing i wasn't look i think it's one of those things where it's a temptation where it's like I've got I've got cards. I need to just I want to keep making these land drops because that's what my magic brain tells me to do. And I think I frequently just played too many lands down when I didn't need to, or I should have been cycling to draw through the deck more because, like you said, there's a lot of air in there, and these cycling lands could be considered air. So replacing them with another card in your deck, I think, is something that you need to be. I think you need to look at those cycling lands as, can I cycle these before? Should I play this to the board? Well, I, th- I think of it a little bit differently too, which is more, yeah, definitely before you play them to the board, but even in early turn sequencing, they're the last cards I try to play in my sequencing. So of all the tapped lands of everything, I try to keep them in hand longer so that if I get, you know, you do draw a good amount of cards with this deck. And so if you kind of get draws in and draw other lands, then in the mid game, you have those cycling lands. So once you get fires online, you just fire them off and try to get more gas, basically. So I'm I'm basically trying to hold them until turn five if I can. But you know, if you have to play them earlier than you do, it it is what it is. I mean, I I had a couple of games where it was like, well, I guess I'm playing. I played the Ralgren Triome, I think, on turns one, two, and three, one game because I was like, well, <laughs> it is what it is. This is what I have. And it's awesome on turn one. You know, if, if there's no chance of cycling it, that feels like the best turn one land you can you can cast. Yeah. So it's all about mana sinks, right? Like the way to really get that third card, that third mana of value off of it is to make sure you have activated abilities that you can use that your real mana on because you're not holding up mana for counter spells, you know? Yeah, the one other thing though is don't underestimate the power of a big shark. You know, that was, I think, one of the reasons why I actually did like keeping my mana growing even after I had uh, fires out, just because eventually I need to win. And sometimes you can make an 8-8 flying shark and that will do it. One of those situations, again, where you want to make sure that you have run someone out of removal before you do that, right? Like try to have ground them out on cards already before you drop that shark because if you're in game one before someone has potentially taken some removal out, they're just going to, they almost certainly will have the kill card, but it's, it's a giant threat. It draws you a card. So it's not like you lose tempo for doing it, but um, yeah, shark is good. Shark typhoon is awesome. You love to see it. You do. So here's the thing that I'm surprised we haven't mentioned this yet, but fires of invention forces you to think about your sequencing because if you're not careful and you cast cards in the wrong order, you'll just like lose some potential value. And I don't necessarily have any specific examples here, but you know, sometimes if you're casting your Fires of Invention, just keep in mind that you can only cast one more spell that turn. So make it count. For sure. 
I, I definitely felt in a few games or just, I just sort of like spell happy where it's like, I can, I can, I can do so much. Oh God, I'm still going so fast. Oh crap. And it's like, you know, you, you, you do something stupid. You're like, you're not getting max value. You're just casting it because you can. And I think that's kind of where the edges in a, in a deck like this come from, which is like, I don't need to necessarily get maximum board presence with my planeswalkers when perhaps a turn later I can respond to something my opponent did, or I can play this to fairy three now and they won't be surprised by it. Like, you know, do I want to save this to bounce something that they play and set them back on a tempo, you know, thing, or it's just, there's a lot of, small edges that I think it's easy to get caught up in the excitement of, Oh, my fire is engine on is online. Sick. Yeah. Yeah. I would keep in mind though, that a lot of times with this deck, you want to spend the mana if you have the card, right? Like this is, you're going to do better if you've spent your mana in with this deck, you're not trying to hold up interaction. Maybe if you're trying to play around a counter spell, you kind of like pump the brakes, but a lot of times you're just like, I've got Teferi on three. Do you have a counter spell? Are you going to kill it? I've got fires on four. Do you have a counter spell? I've got Luca on five. Like, you know, it's, you just kind of have to go for it. Uh, and then in the mid game, I think that's where you get your chance to really start to play around stuff when you can do multiple things a turn. Mm-hmm. You know, with Teferi's and Narset sticking around, I found that I wanted to activate all of my Planeswalker abilities often before I cast anything into fires. Of oh Invention. yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe this is obvious, but as, if you can have more information or more cards to choose from before casting spells, you should probably do that. Yeah. Yeah. If you're unfamiliar with super friends decks, which this is not a deck that I play often. Like I know I don't typically have like three or four planeswalkers down. The most I might have is like in a, in a mono green walkers deck. And you know, there's a few there and I'm, but I'm used to what they're doing. So I'm using these control planeswalkers, I agree with Stan where it's kind of better to to look at your board before you do anything and just kind of do stuff in an order that makes sense, which is like, okay, what is Narset's going to dig for some spells? I'm going to use Narset first. I'm going to see what, you know, she gets me. I'm going to, uh, can I bounce something with Teferi? If not, then I'll just plus them up to make sure I always plus them up and don't forget to do that. Like just sort of like go through your, your sequence of walkers that make sense and, then act with the spells you have in hand. I think it's typically best. Don't forget, you know, we talked about not bouncing Fires of Invention with Teferi earlier, but you can cast two spells. You can do all your Planeswalker activations, cast two spells off of Fires of Invention, minus Teferi to pick up your fires and use your mana to cast other spells that you've drawn, even potentially with that Teferi just then, and then replay fires the next turn if you really want to make sure you're like emptying your hand on a certain turn, because fires has already served its purpose there, right? You you cast two spells off of it. Maybe if it's a definitive turn, you don't care if you have to recast it next turn. I think uh, one of our last points about playing fires well has to do with a sideboard card, which is pretty much ubiquitous in all these Super Friends decks, almost ubiquitous in any deck that has access to blue, and that's Mystical Dispute. So just a reminder, if you have Fires of Invention out, you can only play at sorcery speed unless you've bounced it back and, you know, it's before your end step. Right. You can only... you can only play spells on your turn. So you can cast instants. So if someone tries to counter your card that you cast into 
like that you cast with fires, you can mystical mystical dispute their counter spell, right? But you just can't do stuff on their turn, so you can't counter like their sorceries or their planeswalkers or things like that. Sure, 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 sure. Yeah. But with that in mind, you sort of have to play mystical dispute in Pioneer, I think. You know, whether it's Thassa's Oracle. Jace, wielder of mysteries, Teferi, time reveler, Gyruda. There's all these really powerful blue cards that other mystical disputes. Exactly. But at the same time, because of the restriction on fires, I found that a you kind of want to be aggressive with your disputes, and sometimes like actually casting it on turns one through three, if you know you're going to get a fires out on turn four. And like to that point, you just don't need to. You don't need to be precious with them. But I got to say, like, if I had more time with this deck, I'd just try playing it without the Mystical Disputes and dedicate those sideboard slots to something else. Because once you have Fires out, that dispute feels so bad. It's just like the one card in your hand you'll never get rid of and you have no way to, like, cycle it away for something else. Yeah. Someone would have to make a mistake to make your Mystical Dispute work on your turn, right? They'd have to try to counter your first spell, which is like... Do they really want to do that? You know, <laughs> you're only allowed to cast two spells. So something to think about. Yeah, absolutely. All right. We were talking about matchups and sideboarding and stuff. Sure. Yeah. I mean, this is kind of a tricky topic because in an 80 card deck, your sideboard struggles with addressing certain matchups surgically, as I think we kind of talked about on, on yesterday or last week's episode where we, you know, covered all the important companions. But we still have 14 cards and a Yurion, and those cards I found kind of exist in two tiers. I'm curious if you guys agree. You sort of have your must-have sideboard cards, which is like your graveyard hate, because you kind of have to play graveyard hate in this format for now. And also your aggro hate, just because burn and, and these like aggressive Luris decks are so popular, and, you know, maybe they're not all Luris decks, but... The format is quite aggressive right now. And within those two camps of graveyard and aggro hate, you have kind of like a suite of cards that are good against a variety of different matchups. So sometimes you have, you know, the cards that are good against control, which is mystical dispute. Maybe you're Gideon of the trials. I think pretty good against some control matchups. Against your aggro matchups, you have resolute archangel, which is a card that resets your life total. Heck of a card, I must say. Never got to cast it, but it was cast against me while I was playing Burn. (laughs) It's just like so heartbreaking. You're like, thanks. Thanks. I've lost now. Isolate. One mana white instant to exile target one mana permanent. Mm -hmm. Also, Teo the Shield Mage comes up a lot. Uh, It's good for additional Luka Fodder. But it also makes walls that can clog up the board against some of your opponent's creatures. It also gives you hexproof, so it can shut down some of your opponent's burn spells. It can shut down opposing thought seizes. Again, getting into the trials, I think, is actually pretty good in some aggro matchups just because it can prevent damage dealt by whatever your opponent's biggest creature is. That emblem also, nothing to sneeze at. And then we talk about combo being pretty popular in the format. Sometimes this deck runs Damping Sphere. Sometimes this deck runs Rest in Peace, which is good against, like, Breach. I would bring it in against Inverter occasionally to shut off their Dig Through Times. Mystical Dispute, good against some of those combo strategies. And also, a card I never thought I'd read out loud, Void Winnower. 
This is a wild one. Yeah. So let's let's talk about Void Winnower and Resolute Arch Archangel for a second, because these are like massive converted mana cost cards. I mean, Void Winnower is a nine, and uh Resolute Archangel is a seven. Uh Resolute Archangel, like Stan said, resets your life total. It's a four-four for seven. Uh Void Winnower is an 11-9 Eldrazi. It's from Battle for Zendikar. And it says, your opponents can't cast spells with even converted mana costs. And then it says, your opponents can't block with creatures with even converted mana costs. Zero is even, which is actually Mm -hmm. super relevant because you have a bunch of zero CMC flying sharks. Wait, but they can't block with creatures with even converted mana cost. It's not your guys. It's that they can't block using zero CMC guys. Yeah, and guess what's really popular right now? Shark tokens in the format. Yeah, they're all over the place. Yeah, that makes sense. And the the other thing that this deck is for, you know, like Stan was maybe about to mention before I so rudely popped in, is that, you know, Inverter is a four CMC spell. Uh, Underworld Breach is a two CMC spell. And Garuda is a six CMC spell. And Garuda is a deck that's entirely full of even <laughs> even casting cost cards. Yeah, Thassa's Oracle is sometimes two mana. They can get around it, but sometimes they can only cast it for two. Also, Jace Wielder of Mysteries is four mana. And, you know, there's countless other even CMC cards, but these are the big ones. So the deal with these super high CMC cards, you've probably figured it out by now, is they are cheated into play by Luca. Right. Like that's the sideboard plan here. And I think the question can be, do you take out Agent of Treachery and replace them with these? Do you run Agent of Treachery and these? I think it's sort of like matchup and sort of context dependent. Personally, I I feel like most of the time I would be choosing a a cheat target that I wanted in my deck and using just one because I don't want a bunch of extra cards in my deck, like a bunch of extra like giant cards in my deck that I'll probably won't be able to cast. But that's kind of the deal is like, against Garuda, put Void Winner in, take Agent of Treachery out, and fire it off, and hope that you get that in play fast enough before they get a chance to cast Garuda at all. I'll be honest, this may have been a mistake on my part, but I almost never wanted to take out Agent of Treachery. And part of that may be because I felt like Agent can be so effective across so many different matchups that if I can steal an opponent's permanent, even if I don't get Void Winner or Angel, like sometimes that's enough. Maybe Angel actually flips that script a little bit. Like Angel is so good against Burn that perhaps you actually do want to take out Agent in that situation. But you want to make sure you're going to get it right. right. But but for Void Winnower, you know, like I still would probably keep in the Agent just because stealing permanence is important, and you could potentially get him off the combo or whatever their win con is by doing that too. Also, also, I do want to say sometimes I would run out of Luca targets. Like Agent is easy to kill. If Luca's sticking around and I have all these wall tokens, like having more things to get with Luca feels good. Yeah. I guess it depends on how much of a silver bullet it is. Do you know what I mean? Like, is it the kind of card that like you absolutely know will win you a matchup versus just be high value? So versus like Garuda, then maybe Void Winnower is just so good that you're not going to have the agents in. And like and like once once the the board has been filled with random Garuda and clones, like your agent isn't going to do much for you anyway. So I think it kind of depends on like analyze the matchup and think about just how good is a single you know a single creature going to be over a, a multiple. Yeah, 
I think this is a scenario where we're, we're going to need to run the simulation, do 100 virtual matchups, and see what happens. Shane's got tomorrow off, so he, he can do that with you, Stan. Tomorrow's, tomorrow's Tuesday? I did yeah. not know I had that off. You should, man, tell my boss. I sent your boss a note. It's a, it's a present I arranged for you. Thanks, bud. Okay, I made this little list of what I thought were some good matchups and what I thought were some bad matchups. I'd love to gut check it against some of your experiences. Mm-hmm. Good matchups. Luris Burn and Aggro in general. I felt like this deck was just designed to beat aggressive creature-based strategies. I don't know. I, I, the the Insole felt terrible, but I could have just drawn poorly. I couldn't. I couldn't close the game out, and then they just had. Cruddy artifacts that I didn't have the ability to do anything with, and then they could just draw an insult, you know, some kind of insult effect, and just be swinging at me. And I couldn't even, I didn't have anything to block with. I, I was cycling shark tokens just to like get chump blockers against their dark steel citadels. My wrath didn't do anything. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree, Stan, that this deck is most feels like it is designed to deal with creature strategies for the most part, right? Like it has some game against other decks because of the power of planeswalkers and the specific planeswalkers that are in here. But, you know, it's got six wraths main. It's got a removal suite of like 12 to 15 cards. Like that is Jeskai control down to a T, right? Like Jeskai control decks generally are good in metagames that are defined by creature decks because they have wrath and they have lightning bolt basically and so that that's what you're doing otherwise you have a bunch of dead cards in in your deck if you're not you, if you don't have ways you know targets for your creature removal game one is rough mm-hmm. in this format in particular these are all things that only mostly only target creatures so it's not like you get the utility out of lightning bolt snap lightning bolt someone like you get out of Jeskai control and modern sometimes and this one oath of chandra is pretty much dead Unless you're going to play a whole bunch of Planeswalkers and get maybe six damage off of it. Yeah, I mean, I've been playing the Lurus Burn deck in Pioneer for that Mana Traders tournament. And I got to say, whenever I'm paired up against Jeskai, I feel like if I don't win on turn four or five, it's just over for me. Like, maybe they get an Angel post board, but even in game one, like all those Wraths, all that point removal... It's yeah. it, it sort of this deck, I think, forces the aggro deck to have a nut draw. Yeah, I will say I lost to burn twice in the league that I did, but I think it was because they killed me on turn four. They killed me on turn four very easily. And so I just could not bring enough things online to kill them before then. Even in one game, I played double Birth of Miletus, thinking that the walls and life gain would be able to get me there. And it, it wasn't quite enough. I died with like, you know, I they killed me with their last card basically so i think it's one of those things where it depends on how big the aggro is like if we're talking like stompy decks with or they the, the clarion doesn't do enough against them or the install decks where they have x5s and the clarion's not touching them like you're just really drawing towards a supreme verdict type effect and you don't really have enough individual point removal to to stop the the go wide ish type strategy so i think against like if you have all of your wrath effects live, then certainly it's going to feel good. All right, so that's a big bucket here. What what's the gameplay against aggro? Let's kind of buzz through the rest of it and on on your list here, Stan. Sure. I thought the Gyruda combo matchup was actually not bad because even though that's kind of a combo deck, again, wraths quite good against a bunch of clones and a bunch of Gyruda, and you kill their rampers too with wrath, which is nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the occasional sideboard mystical dispute 
certainly relevant against a big blue creature that they often have to tap out for. And also, I'll admit my sample size here is quite small. It's It was one game against a fan of the show named G-Have. But I thought that the a, a match against Five Color Niv was both very interesting, very long, but I ultimately felt like I was favored. A, because somewhat weak to Wraths. B, because it's somewhat weak to Mystical Dispute. There, Teferi Time Ravelers don't do a lot against this Super Friends deck, as we said, because it doesn't really play at instant speed. And also, like, they have Planeswalker Hate, but they're a Urion deck, so they have to get through a lot of the deck to find that Planeswalker Hate, and sometimes they just don't find it. So, because that deck is kind of slow to close kind of mid-rangey i think the longer the game goes the more it kind of ends up in our favor yeah i think i think it's worth pointing out that just a general principle from what you pointed out in this list is like teferi time raveler doesn't really do a ton against this deck and so any deck that's really trying to leverage that it's kind of like it can be annoying they can bounce your walls with it to make you lose your creature token but it doesn't do much for them did either of you feel like you had a good matchup against the deck I didn't mention? A favored matchup? Man, I don't know. This It's hard for me to know like what's favored and unfavored. I think it's one of those things where I think the deck can feel really good sometimes and not feel very good other times. And I think that we can get a... You kind of need the chase about the 80 card thing, right? Where it's like, I felt... I definitely felt like it wasn't as consistent as I would have liked because you know sometimes you draw the stuff that's good against creatures and sometimes you draw the planeswalkers that are going to provide lasting benefit against other controlling strategies and keep them off their card draw and so i think it's it's hard for me to know like what's like what's truly feeling favored or not and i think in in that fashion it sort of felt like a you know a, a mid-range or a control deck where you just have so many pieces that are not always great I will say I felt pretty good against other control decks. You know, I played against some kind of weird Grixis control decks. I played against some blue-white kind of stuff. And I felt like I was able to sort of maneuver past them by just getting more value out of the cards that I was drawing and them kind of drawing cards that weren't that good against me. And so I felt pretty good in that situation. Sure. All right, I got a short list of bad matchups. I'm really going to breeze through this because we're we're starting to run low on time. I did not like my position against inverter decks. Still the most popular deck in the format, feels like. They have a ton of main deck Planeswalker hate. Hero's Downfall, so good against Gideon. Kind of feels like Hero's Downfall is in the deck because of Gideon. So they're more or less just pre-boarded against us now. And that felt like a problem. Also, it sort of makes you play to your sideboard, which, as we mentioned, is not a great position to be in when you're on a Yurion deck. For a lot of the same reasons as above, the Lotus Breach deck felt not great, uh, especially since it can threaten a kill on turn four. And like sometimes it felt like the Jeskai deck was still using turn four to set itself up. Yeah, no ramp, no speed. Yeah. Finally, Mono White Devotion. I think even though it can be weak to Wraths, because it can set up this play where it just like it keeps a Heliot around until it has enough mana that it can just like do a walking ballista thing since you're so bad at interacting at instant speed. I felt like even though this matchup is a little closer, 
it still felt like mono white or these like white ish devotion decks were somewhat favored. Love it. I think it's a great list. Did I miss anything? No, no. All right, Shane, we've mentioned on the pod, you want more decisions in magic. Did this scratch that itch? Definitely made some decisions. <laughs> Definitely a lot of decisions to make and they felt like they mattered. So that's good. Um, you know, I didn't, I did not have a big sample size against burn, but I would, I will, I would believe you that the burn would feel pretty favored because the, the burn part of burn kind of sucks, right? Like it's, it's a very permanent based burn and the burn spells themselves are not that great. So it's not like you're like the reach isn't that amazing. So if you control the board with your wraths, then I can imagine that that would feel, feel good. So I feel like when I say decisions don't matter, oftentimes it's like the, when a format's so fast that I feel like I'm getting ran over before I can even make decisions that, that matter or that it's really dependent on like the cards that I draw off the first like three or four draws along with my opener. And it didn't feel like the case with this because it felt like you're sort of, you're able to develop and control a little bit and then start generating value off of what you're maneuvering towards, like with a Narset that you stick or with a Teferi that you're controlling the board with and drawing a little bit more. And that all felt good. So I would play this again. I would say that I would play this again too. I actually really enjoyed playing this deck. Uh, I felt like, yeah, like Shane said, a lot of small decisions to make that felt like they mattered. I do. I did notice that, you know, we started working on this episode. This was the top deck in the Pioneer meta, and now it is severely fallen off down to like fifth or sixth. There were two in that top eight of the super qualifier that we talked about. So maybe, you know, I'm not sure exactly what's going on there to make these little changes, but I think I would take this through another league and try to have some fun and see if I can get better at it. You know, I only went two, three in the league that I played. Uh, I felt like I could have done better uh, and maybe I will in the future. Yeah, I have to play this deck again because I'm still in a league. Got two matches left and I'm currently one, two. So those those last two matches really matter. Yeah. <laughs> Shane, you touched on this, but Dave, real quick, how did you feel playing an 80 card deck? I don't know if you've played Yurion in the past. This is the first Yurion deck that I played, and I thought it was fine, honestly. Like, I, I didn't really feel like I was struggling that hard to get to my payoff cards. Um, it felt reasonably consistent, at least at a surface level to me. So I, I feel like, yeah, you know, you got to be smart about building your Yurion decks, but it didn't seem like that bad. Well, there you have it, folks. You have to be smart building your Urion decks. What a great takeaway. (laughs) That's what this episode is really about. Hot takes. All right. This was a really fun one, but that wraps up this week's show. If you haven't yet, make sure you subscribe to our podcast so you get the latest episode as soon as they come out. You've already listened to 75. Why haven't you subscribed yet? I don't get it. Consider it. Likewise, If you use Apple Podcasts, consider leaving us a rating and a review. Heck, if you don't use Apple Podcasts, you can share this episode with a friend, share our podcast with one person you know who likes magic, maybe play some of these formats. The cool thing about this episode is you can listen to it if you only play standard on Arena. Our friend Joe has been trying to get us to play more Arena, and this is about as close as we're going to get, just because this is practically a standard deck. So really, we're, we're crossing a lot of bridges with this one. If you'd like to submit a question to the podcast or pick our brain on something in modern or pioneer, you can tweet us at the dive down, all one word, or email the dive down at gmail.com. If you'd like to support the show, you can join our Patreon. 
Joining at any tier gets you into the super secret Slack channel. We're starting to run more tournaments. You can chat with us about our favorite Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle movies. It's all in there. Find that at patreon.com slash the dive down. Also, shout out to Mana Traders for sponsoring the show. If you sign up for Mana Traders using promo code the dive down, all one word, you can get 15% off your first three months of renting magic online cards. As always, special thanks to the bands Nowhere and Spaceblood for letting us use their music. And until next week, super friends, assemble! A Magic the Gathering podcast for the casual spike. Oh, that pamplemousse. Oh, that pamplemousse. Wah, wah, wah. You want more decisions in magic? Did this scratch that itch? I can do so much. Oh, I'm still going so fast. Oh, crap. Dave, you're, you're a Mox Amberman. Maybe if it's a definitive turn, you don't care if you have to recast it next turn the dive down yeah they're all over the place all right all that out of the way let's jump over to shane fit that on your streaming screen seg